welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Did somebody say all wins for non-citizens? If they didn't, I just did. This might be a never-before-seen thing on the pod. Non-citizens batting a thousand across three cases. So I'll take deeper dives into all of them. And heck, let's add an unpublished win by perennial podcast favorite Ben Winograd, who wrote to me about his case, Garcia Rogel v. Garland, unpublished but 21 pages long, where, according to Ben, the court held that the IJ violated matter of Ari Gwyn by giving excessive weight to a police report when the respondent was never convicted of the underlying charges. The podcast cuppeth overfloweth this weeketh. And now, for the 10th time on the podcast, no joke, we're going to talk about a case with a plaintiff named Mr. Singh. Enjoy. First up, Singh v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 14th, 2022. This case is about past persecution. Like in a few decisions of late, Mr. Singh is a Sikh from India and a member of the Shiromani Akili Dal Party, or Man Party. The Man Party, quote, advocates for the creation of a sovereign state for Sikh people and is opposed by the Congress Party, one of India's major political parties, end quote. Mr. Singh entered the U.S. at 17 years old and applied for asylum shortly thereafter in removal proceedings. In support, he testified that he was verbally and physically attacked in 2017 and 2018 by members of the Congress Party. The Congress Party doesn't currently control the prime ministership in India, but it's definitely one of the oldest, largest, and most powerful modern political parties in India's parliamentary-type system. To summarize in a non-expert manner. Mr. Singh's brother was attacked by Congress Party members in August 2017, and he suffered, quote, serious internal injuries, end quote. The brother fled to the U.S. shortly after that. And that's when it all started against Mr. Singh. Congress Party members threatened him and wanted to know where his brother was. They also wanted Mr. Singh to stop his other political activities and to sell drugs for them. 
Looks like he didn't do so, and in February 2018, after praying at a Sikh temple, Mr. Singh was accosted by Congress Party members who, quote, slapped Mr. Singh on the face, hit his stomach, threw him to the ground, and started kicking his stomach, end quote. He tried to report it with his dad, but police threatened Mr. Singh for doing so and kicked him out of the police station. He was attacked again in July 2018. Quote, the men beat Mr. Singh with hockey sticks all over his back and arms, and they told Mr. Singh that they were going to kill him. End quote. Same thing. Police wanted no part of it and threatened Mr. Singh. He went to go live with an uncle, and then he left India for the United States. I quote the above extensively because the immigration judge found that it didn't rise to the level of past persecution. The IJ deemed Mr. Singh credible but found that it didn't equate to past persecution in totality and therefore Mr. Singh retained the burden to establish a well-founded fear of persecution, which he hadn't met. The IJ denied Convention Against Torture Protection as well and the BIA affirmed it all. The Ninth Circuit had other ideas, at least on past persecution. The Ninth Circuit didn't agree with the BIA that Mr. Singh hadn't suffered, quote, serious harm, end quote, and that therefore he didn't establish a past persecution finding. According to the Ninth Circuit, quote, one, he was forced to flee his home after being repeatedly assaulted, two, one of those incidents involved a death threat, three, he was between the ages of 16 and 18 when the attacks occurred, four, his brother also experienced this violence, and five, we have already recognized that Man Party members have faced persistent threats in the region of India where Mr. Singh was twice attacked, end quote. That fifth point is referring back to the decision Carr v. Wilkinson, episode 40, and other precedent in the Ninth Circuit dating back to 2004. Ninth Circuit precedent establishes that repeated incidents involving threats or severe harm or death forcing a non-citizen to flee their home rises to the level of past persecution. And at a minimum, that's what happened here. Moreover, aligning with favorable Fourth Circuit precedent and other case law, quote, even if an applicant does not suffer physical violence, we have consistently held that death threats alone can constitute persecution, end quote. Bit of a theme on the podcast of late. To be exceptionally clear, Ninth Circuit Asylum Attorneys, quote, Mr. Singh had to flee his home after he was the victim of a verbal confrontation and two physical attacks, one of which involved a death threat. Based on our precedents, he suffered serious harm, end quote. No severe injuries required, according to the Ninth Circuit, quote, it would be a strange rule if the absence or presence of a broken arm were the dispositive fact in an asylum claim, end quote. Further agreeing with the Fourth Circuit and other Ninth Circuit precedent, quote, the conclusion that Mr. Singh experienced serious harm is strengthened by the fact that these attacks occurred when he was between the ages of 16 and 18, end quote. That is, harm that occurs to a child, even at 16 or 17, might equate to past persecution, even if it wouldn't do so for an adult. And the harms to his brother are relevant for consideration under Ninth Circuit precedent as well. Check out this decision further if you're interested in seeing how to distinguish asylum cases that the BIA and OIL often rely upon to combat past persecution findings in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth here believed Mr. Singh's case akin to the very favorable recent cases of Aden and Flores Molina, episodes 45 and 112 respectively, and remanded. Because if Mr. Singh had established all elements of past persecution, it was DHS's burden to rebut not Mr. Singh's to further prove it to the BIA. 
The Ninth Circuit affirmed denial of cat protection, though, although without much analysis. But remand on the most important stuff. So congratulations, Maleha Nassar Kanavia and Erica Roman for petitioner. To quote Billy Idol, more, more, more. Judge Miller concurs, noting that the Envoc Ninth Circuit or Supreme Court should step in to resolve a standard of review dispute. Riveting. See, there's a split in the Ninth Circuit whether the court should review a past persecution finding de novo or for substantial evidence. De novo would mean that the Ninth Circuit looks at the facts in the first instance and sees if they meet the legal definition of persecution without regard to what the IJ or the BIA found. Substantial evidence would mean that the Ninth Circuit defers to what the IJ and the BIA said unless the BIA made a really big mistake. As you can gather, that's a big difference and a big deal. To me, as the term persecution is a legal one with a legal standard, it would appear that Guerrero Fria makes it a mixed question of law and fact that the circuits review de novo. Many on the Ninth Circuit agree. Judge Akuta in dissent would uphold the BIA. And although the Ninth Circuit didn't mention it here because the dispute really regarded about the severity of harm to Mr. Singh, whether Mr. Singh needs to establish that the government of India is the persecutor rather than private actors is probably an active dispute on remand. And the Ninth Circuit actually dealt with a very similar issue a year and a half ago in Carvey Wilkinson, again, episode 40. In that decision, the Ninth Circuit discussed how the Congress Party in India wasn't technically in charge, but with its power and within a parliamentary system like India's, persecution by its members can satisfy the past persecution government actor prong. Or to quote the court from Carr, quote, When a petitioner suffers persecution at the hands of a major political party, both during and after its rise to power from a minority voting bloc in the legislature to the head of government, the source of persecution is the government itself, end quote. Powerful stuff to rely on upon remand. And that is Singh v. Garland. Next is Martinez Roman v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on September 15th, 2022. This case is about the driest of issues, motions for continuances but with big real-world implications. Mr. Martinez is from Mexico, he's lived in the U.S. for a long time, and he has three young U.S. citizen children. So when he was placed in removal proceedings in 2019, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B. Looks like he satisfied all of the relief requirements, except that naughty high standard implemented by IRIRA, the requirement that he established that his removal will cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his LPR or U.S. citizen parent, spouse, or child. On the day that he actually filed the application for relief, the immigration judge set the matter for a merits hearing in less than two months' time. One month later, Mr. Martinez, through counsel, moved for a continuance, Quote, explaining that he had not yet been able to identify a psychologist who could complete an evaluation of his children and prepare an appropriate written report before the call-up date, end quote, and who would be available on such short notice to testify at the hearing. And that might be a big deal, because non-LPR cancellation is intentionally hard to get, meaning that the non-citizen's evidentiary burden is significant. The motion for a continuance advised that a psychologist was ready, willing, and able, but just wasn't available on the scheduled court date. 
other psychologists couldn't do it in the expedited time frame. Mr. Martinez, through counsel, requested a two-week continuance of the merits hearing. The IJ refused, denying without prejudice. Mr. Martinez, through counsel, moved some mountains and got the psychologist to issue an expedited report, and even got the psychologist to carve out time to testify. But apparently the psychologist could only do it over the phone. And so, five days before the individual hearing, Mr. Martinez's counsel moved the IJ to permit telephonic testimony. The IJ did not rule on the motion. Heck, who knows if the IJ even saw the motion, as everything was surely happening through the mail and through paper. Full-fledged electronic dockets in immigration court cannot come soon enough. And the OAR, it's on its way. It's on its way. Not in time for Mr. Martinez, though. The day of the individual and possibly just becoming aware of the pending motion, the IJ denied it. A different IJ. In fact, quote, one of the four IJs assigned to Mr. Martinez's case over the course of the proceedings, end quote. The IJ reasoned that the psychologist's, quote, live testimony, whether telephonic or in person, was unnecessary because Mr. Martinez's counsel had filed a written report and the government had expressed a willingness to stipulate to the report's findings, end quote. Fair enough. And decent litigation win, actually, if that report made an ultimate finding, as experts are allowed to do, that the children would suffer exceptional and extremely unusual hardship in the event that Mr. Martinez was removed. But I don't think the report did go that far, and counsel explained that the psychologist would be testifying to new, additional evidence and findings not in the report if permitted to testify. The IJ was unmoved, so counsel moved for a continuance again and apparently other fact witnesses were also unavailable. The IJ denied it, believing the written statements in the record detailed and sufficient. But not sufficient enough to grant the relief, it turns out. Based on Mr. Martinez's testimony taken from immigration prison, it appears that his children are having a very rough go of it during his detention, including suffering psychological issues both related and unrelated to his detention and there was a real prospect of their descent into poverty if he was sent back to Mexico. The IJ heard that testimony and denied the relief based on a finding that Mr. Martinez had failed to establish the requisite hardship, and the BIA affirmed. The IJ also found that Mr. Martinez lacked good moral character because of some arrests and convictions and a failure to file taxes due to his being paid under the table for many years. But the BIA didn't affirm that portion of the IJ's finding. So just the hardship finding is at issue to the Second Circuit. A finding that the Second Circuit believes is inextricably linked to the denial of continuances. The court wasn't willing to go quite so far as to call the IJ's denial a due process violation, but it was sufficient to say that the IJ abused his discretion in denying the continuance day of. In a quote that might make IJs tread with caution when denying continuances, the Second Circuit believed it air that, quote, here, the IJ rested his denial of the continuance on an assumption that witness testimony would be unnecessary, and then faulted Mr. Martinez for perceived gaps in the record that those witnesses likely would have been able to fill. We conclude that Mr. Martinez has demonstrated that the IJ's decision fell outside the range of permissible decisions, as did the BIA's decision endorsing that decision. End quote. Both the fact and expert witnesses that Mr. Martinez sought to proffer surely had more to add, believe the Second Circuit, particularly in light of the fact that some of the written statements were short indeed. 
The IJ's disallowal of that and then holding that Mr. Martinez had failed to meet his burden could not stand. Especially as the IJ appeared to have identified errors and omissions in the expert's report that the expert psychologist could have certainly explained if permitted to do so, telephonically or in person. All of this was buttressed heavily by that wonderfully interesting group of former IJs who submitted an amicus explaining, among other things, that, quote, live testimony is the primary method of fact-finding, end quote. At the end of the day, the Second Circuit is clearly not pleased, believing it apparent that, quote, the IJ had not read the psychologist's report before deeming his live testimony duplicative of his written report, end quote. Big problem, as an IJ, unlike federal judges, quote, is not merely the fact finder and adjudicator, but also has an obligation to establish the record, end quote. So congratulations, Zoe Levine and Ryan Brewer of the Bronx Defenders. And of course, those former IJs coming in on amicus. And that is Martinez Roman v. Garland. Our final case on our week of non-citizen wins is Fraser v. Attorney General of the United States, published by the Third Circuit on September 15th, 2022. This is another case about, get this, continuances. But it's an interesting one. Mr. Fraser is a lawful permanent resident from the Dominican Republic. But in June 2012, he was arrested and eventually convicted of New Jersey robbery, burglary, and some other crimes, receiving a 10-year prison sentence. DHS initiated removal proceedings during his incarceration, and long story short, he is removable and will lose his green card, and he was deemed eligible only for deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture due to the crimes. Actually, it's a bit of a crazy procedural story with twists and turns befitting immigration. At the onset, pro bono attorneys didn't have capacity to take on his case. Then COVID-19 hit. That was a crazy delay, as everyone recalls. And on at least three occasions, it looks like detention officials just didn't produce Mr. Fraser for his hearings. Then there was a snowstorm at the detention facility. All told, proceedings were delayed for over a year while Mr. Fraser remained detained. And pretty much none of it was his fault. So I guess by the time that the final merits hearing was approaching, the IJ might have understandably wanted to get the case done. By that time, a pro bono attorney had filed an appearance in the case, and that attorney requested simply 30 days to familiarize herself with the case and prepare to represent Mr. Fraser. Honestly, that's an exceptionally expedited time frame extension, as is. But it looks like all of that actually occurred the day before the merits hearing, because the attorney appeared at the merits, again, a pro bono attorney, and explained that she had been retained 24 hours prior. She hadn't even seen the file and she had just had COVID-19 for a long time. Nevertheless, DHS opposed a 30-day continuance, and the IJ sided with DHS. Pro bono counsel then did the only thing that she really could do. She moved to withdraw, so she didn't commit ineffective assistance of counsel. The IJ granted that motion, and then denied Mr. Fraser's request for an opportunity to obtain new counsel. Therefore, representing himself at the individual hearing that followed directly after that, Mr. Fraser testified about how his co-defendant in the criminal case had been deported to the Dominican Republic already, and that he himself had been brutally beaten in prison by people connected to his co-defendant. Seems like he may have cooperated against his co-defendant, who at one point said that, quote, he had two bullets, one for her and one for me, end quote, referring to Mr. Fraser's girlfriend. 
All of that totally happened. Mr. Fraser actually had quite a bit of evidence considering, including reports of the prison beating. The IJ denied cat deferral by oral decision. The BIA affirmed and held that the IJ hadn't erred in denying the continuance request. Seems like Mr. Fraser had counsel for the BIA appeal. And he definitely had counsel before the Third Circuit, and counsel won. This time, the court did indeed hold that the denial of a continuance under these circumstances amounted to a constitutional due process violation. To establish a due process violation generally in the Third Circuit, a non-citizen must show that 1. he was, quote, prevented from reasonably presenting his case, and 2. that substantial prejudice resulted, end quote. To show substantial prejudice, the non-citizen must establish that, quote, the infraction had the potential for affecting the outcome of removal proceedings, end quote. Emphasis by the court. That latter requirement, the potentially effect thing, would appear applicable wherever prejudice is required in the Third Circuit. Like, say, ineffective assistance of counsel claims? So says I. Here, the whole due process analysis occurred in the context of Mr. Fraser's inability to meet his cat burden. And who can really say that a non-citizen detained during a global pandemic and a snowstorm couldn't potentially benefit from an attorney, right? Else what are we doing? Not quite that simple, but I mean kinda. And actually, quote, the right to counsel is a particularly important procedural safeguard because of the grave consequences of removal, end quote. It's such an important right that to the Third Circuit, it doesn't even require that Mr. Fraser make a prejudice showing. That's a big holding, and I'll get to that more in a bit. Here, the court is, quote, hard-pressed to find a more compelling set of facts constituting a violation of Mr. Fraser's due process and statutory right to counsel, end quote. If you've got a case like this on appeal, read this decision and analogize your facts to those present here because the Third Circuit is using strong language. And that's particularly as, under the circumstances, quote, there was no necessity for the hasty hearing by the immigration judge, end quote. Even though Mr. Fraser was detained, everybody. I certainly don't hate that pseudo-standard to guide IJs on continuous motions, that is, whether there is a necessity for a hasty hearing. I don't know about using that quote in my motions, but definitely in my appeals. Importantly, Mr. Fraser was not trying to delay his case, believe the Third Circuit. He was trying to get a reasonable accommodation under some difficult circumstances. Denial of a continuance here was a due process violation. To the Third Circuit, both the IJ and the BIA, quote, ignored the realities of obtaining legal counsel while detained, end quote. In the alternative, the Third Circuit did indeed hold that the denial of counsel had the potential to prejudice Mr. Fraser, therefore establishing that second requirement for a due process violation if prejudice is required. For example, counsel for Mr. Fraser could have obtained documentation regarding the co-defendant's whereabouts and presented this information to the IJ, end quote. Honestly, you and I can probably think of a counterfactual to meet this potential prejudice requirement wherever counsel is denied because us immigration attorneys do provide value. So congratulations Peter R. Crossley and Rebecca Hofstadter from the Legal Services of New Jersey. What a win. And I will not stop there. Because the Third Circuit provides a spectacular quote for use in motions to terminate. 
constitutional violations by DHS can lead to suppression of evidence or even termination in appropriate cases. They're difficult arguments to make, but they can win. Relatedly, however, there is case law out there that says that DHS's violations of its own regulations can lead to termination, and where DHS violates its own mandatory regulations, get this, quote, proving substantial prejudice is not always required. When an agency promulgates a regulation protecting fundamental statutory or constitutional rights of parties, the agency must comply with that regulation. Failure to comply will merit invalidation of the challenged agency action without regard to whether the alleged violation has substantially prejudiced the complaining party, end quote. That's an expansive quote. That's not just about suppressing evidence. That's, for example, possibly terminating proceedings, possibly with prejudice, regardless of whether removability has been established if DHS violates one of the hundreds of regulations binding upon DHS designed to protect a non-citizen's constitutional rights. Not all regulations are that serious, but some are. Here, quote, no showing of prejudice is required because the IJ violated Mr. Fraser's statutory and regulatory rights, end quote, particularly the right to counsel. Read your regs, attorneys, link your reg to a constitutional violation, make your argument, and use this case. And that is Fraser v. Attorney General of the U.S. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.